Poetry. What is it good for? Is a production of Bar Crawl Radio Podcast. According to poet Darius Dautry, a poem cannot save a life, cannot fend off a dark alley attack, make you less woman or less poor or less black and thus treated equal, but a poem can introduce you to yourself. Poetry, What Is It Good For? is a podcast that uses poetry to consider that which troubles us with two poets who know each other's work. I'm Alan Winson, joined by Rebecca McKean and Chris Brandt, and we explore the immense practicality of poetry. Such right. a nice, seemingly nice person as yourself know these two people. <laughs> yeah. Well, you met them long ago. Long ago. I, I was 19 when I met this man. Ah, mm-hmm. and you're still. And he yeah, was, was a Neanderthal when I met him, and he still is. And he drugged me across <coughs> the st- across the country by the hair <coughs> in New York oh. City. I said, yeah, I, you, don't wanna, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to live there. I don't want to live in New York City. A real man, kind of thing. Right? <laughs> oh, oh, no. Well, yeah, and as he's gotten older, he's become more he's of a, a woman. Guy, he's a guy like us. <laughs> I'm, I'm the Balabusta at home. The oh. He is. Yeah. 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 You know what my daddy said? He said, "Early to bed, early to rise, and you never meet any regular guys." <laughs> <laughs> my daddy was great. <laughs> So we're gonna we're gonna do a a bit of an intro. Um, We're gonna go right into, and Chris will tell you that we're gonna talk about why people don't like poetry. So you read our poems, and that's what you came up with. That's what we came up with. This is why this is why people don't like poetry. No, actually, exactly. With Esther Weiner and Alan Wallowitz. Wallowitz and Weiner is like a law firm. It does sound like it. You're right. It is. It is. Or a bad, you know, yeah. And and my originally was Winselberg. 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 So it'd be it'd be Weiner, Wallowitz, and Winselberg. There's a certain ring what? to that. I don't know what it is. I like the name. Don't Winsel- you think Rebecca Winselberg is It's much more poetic name? than Winston. Rebecca is so beautiful. Oh, we have you. Esther and Rebecca. We have Esther. the whole Old Testament. We have biblical. Yeah. At one you time. You're, you're oh, yeah. entirely biblical, yeah. Well, well not entirely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going. Here we go, 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 before they start again. <clears throat> I'm Rebecca McCain, joined today by my poetry-loving co-hosts, Alan Winson and Chris Brandt. We are talking with poets... Esther Weiner and Alan Wallowitz. Hey, and we're on the porch at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar Yay, we're on the back. Upper West Side of Manhattan. Well, we were here a few weeks ago, this, but not on the porch. Well, yeah. we were on the porch for a little while. Until the rain Until came. the thunderstorm. Yeah, oh, that yeah. was exciting. And then the hail. But it's Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar, our favorite bar in the world, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, as we attempt to answer our ongoing question, poetry, what is it good for? And I'm Chris Brandt. Now, the unique aspect of our poetry podcast is that we bring two poets together and look for overlaps. But we're going to be even more unique today. And rather than do the normal podcast thing and introduce our two poets, I want to read a very brief section of a poem by Marianne Moore and then ask you a question. It's from a poem called Poetry. And it goes like this. I, too, dislike it. Reading however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine. Alan Wolowitz, in your essay about your poem, The Story About the Milkman, 
you write, most regular folks, and good folks they are too, don't much care for poetry. So I'd like to ask right at the outset, why poetry? Why put in all the effort? It ain't easy. And if most people don't even like it, including Marianne Moore? And all my friends. There's <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alan, Alan Winston here. So they, they ask you, it's like, you say, I, I wrote a poem. They say, yeah, so? Yes. Do I have to? Or if I'm doing a reading, they'll say, do I have to? Uh, and it's gotten to the point where I no longer tell them about it when I publish something or I'm going to be reading somewhere, except, of course, this podcast. Uh, they'll listen to this intently. I hope so. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's a hard sell. It's a hard sell for, for others. And um, I, I think we all find that. Um, what do you think, Esther? I'm going to counter that a little bit. I am. First of all, I think that there's more, people are more interested these days. If I go into Penn Station to New Jersey Transit, let me tell you, on the wall at New Jersey Transit are poets from New Jersey quoted on the wall. All right. Why do we have everybody in love with Amanda Gorman who read at the inauguration? But the real thing is, which I say to all, most of my classes, how come people who tell me they hate poetry or they don't understand it, whenever there's a wedding, a, a bar mitzvah, a confirmation, a go. funeral, they ask you for a poem. And they do. This is like not an exaggeration. So what do you think? Why is that? Poems sound important when you say, I'm going to read a poem in honor of the death of someone. People get very still if they weren't still already. Uh, at, at a wedding, it's the same. I want to read a poem in honor of the bride and groom. It becomes a very important moment. And then at that moment, no one has to speak in extemporaneously. All they have to do is look at their, at their paper. Um, you know, I still think that poetry is a very hard sell among, need I, must I say, ordinary people. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to say ordinary people. Who, who sits down and, and, and just, you know, like in an afternoon sits and reads poetry? Now, maybe you do. I, I, I have poetry magazines that I look at. Well, that may be part of the problem. I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> what? That I read poetry? <laughs> no, <that it's laughs> poetry insulted. magazine. Oh. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But you know, there's a, this is really real. I gotta keep on this thing. Do you know that that famous uh, wagon train scout Jim Bridger that he, it took the wagon trains out mm -hmm. west. Yeah. He was illiterate, and he hired an actor to read. Uh, the sonnets and Shakespeare to him when he went out on the wagon trains. This is before anybody worried about, oh, it's unavailable or it's elite. He just loved what it sounded like. And he wanted, he took him out each time he took the wagon trains west. And by the way, irony is also Marianne Moore's little number there, don't you think? Yeah, for sure. Course, because, of course, she, she goes on. And she and goes on, <laughs> exactly. Yes. And she does talk about, is it real toads in imaginary gardens? Or, yes. Or imaginary toads and, in and real gardens? And she gives you why poetry exists. Yeah. Exactly. But, all right, I'm going to lay this on. We're a visual society these days. I mean, things right. are all YouTube Everything has and to be on the screen. Instagram, right. and it's all screened. And poetry is a sound. It's also a shape. It's a shape. And yeah. we're going to talk about the shape. Can I, can and I, and I it's musical. 
poetry is musical, even if it has no music. Absolutely, it has tons of music. Oh, yeah. I think I would, I'd like to interject, though. I think for someone uh, at this table who's probably the m least poetic, that would be me, and the one who probably has the most difficulty um, reading poetry and understanding, uh, I think there is something to that, that people think, as I do, that, oh, it's going to be so hard to understand, and I'm, I'm going to feel so stupid. But there's nothing better than when you do read some poetry and it touches you. And you just get into it. Yes. The sound, the music, yes, as yes. he says, everything. Yeah. Yes. I, m m one of the things that I always think about is, is, is that the only two f groups of people who aren't scared of poetry are children and prisoners, because no one has gotten to them yet. Mm. No one has said, You're, don't, don't be afraid of it, you know, or like, that, what is that Billy Collins thing where he says you, you have to resist the temptation to wrestle the poem to the ground right. and torture a confession. <laughs> yeah, of right. It's what true. do you mean? Just well, that's let great. it come that's into great. you. There's just. a third group, too. Yeah. The cigar rollers of yes. Tampa, Florida. Yeah, yeah. Who had, besides all the people rolling the cigars, there was one person who was hired specifically to read poetry and stories to those cigar It's rollers. wonderful, because you know. our, our culture sort of makes it fearful, yeah. you know, and there's nothing fearful about I, Other cultures don't respond to, to, with you know. this kind of fear. Interesting, you know? but okay, okay, I think it's time to formally introduce our poet guests. Esther Weiner was born in Maine, and from an early age, yearned to live in New York City and be an actress. Her early experiences as an actor and working for the BBC clearly show up in her poetry. Amongst her many other books of poetry, At the Last Minute was published in Ireland in 2019. Her poems have appeared in The New Republic and Barrow Street and many others. Esther is an alum of Sarah Lawrence, where she is the founding director of the college's New York Alumni Writers' Night. She is a speaker on Shakespeare for the New York Council for the Humanities and is a professor in the English Department at City College of New York CUNY and the Sarah Lawrence Writing Institute. And here, I'm, this is Alan Winson here, and I'm going to introduce the poet Alan Wallowitz by reading from his online bio, which uh, I got from his website, alanwallowitz.com, of all, of all things. I thought that this may help get a sense of the man and poet who I've never met, but I got a sense of who he was from reading this. And since I assume he wrote this bio, I'm putting it into the first person. So I apologize ahead of time. Accepted. <laughs> I have been writing poetry, sometimes successfully and sometimes un, for more than 50 years. I have a small portion of an MFA in writing from Goddard College and an entire degree from Eastern Connecticut State University and several from Queens College of the U City University of New York. I studied with Esther Weiner and others who probably would not want their names mentioned with mine. <laughs> Though writing poetry can be quite lucrative, I have earned the bulk of my fortune as a teacher and supervisor of secondary English for 34 years. I teach at Manhattanville College in Purchase, New York. My poems can be found lots of places on the web and off. Alan Wallowitz. 
So is that is that is that right? I, uh, you know, if I had to swear to it, I don't know if I would. Uh, if this were a deposition, but uh, that's <laughs> that that that's fairly accurate. And th those are my my words uh, about myself. Yeah. Uh, I I would make this correction. I no longer teach at Manhattanville College because I found that Zoom teaching was not to my liking. Mm -hmm. And Amazingly um, we <laughs> joined, joined a very large right, crew. Exactly. Uh, and I did Zoom teaching for the remainder of the semester we were stuck in in 2020. And then I decided to uh, fully retire because I didn't want to go back to that. Okay. There was just very little joy in the Zoom teaching for me. And so you got to uh, update your website. That's that's another that's another problem that I have. You know, it's wonderful to have a, a website, but it's it's miserable work to update it. And I think I lasted that about a year and a half ago. Uh, and I keep the website going because I'm very afraid that somebody's going to come along and steal my AlanWallowitz.com. You, you know, they're, they're lined up for the moment that I cease paying for it. And uh -huh. they're, they're going to grab it. It might be worth a lot of money. I know. I'm surprised people haven't already offered you tons of well, money. Well, I'm waiting. I'm waiting till the offer, the offer becomes uh, really ugly. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'll give you 50 cents. <laughs> I think it's a deal. Well, and for our other poet, <coughs> Asta Weiner, I have known Asta for, my God. Don't even go there. <laughs> a long time. A long time, yes. We were both at Sarah Lawrence College mm -hmm. when Asta was an undergraduate and I was a graduate student among the very first men admitted right. to Sarah Lawrence. It That's was hog right. heaven. I mean, what? what? Oh, wow. How bad <laughs> could it have been? <laughs> for us, a surprise for you, a miracle. <laughs> Do you care to revise those remarks? No. Um, well, Esther was the best friend of my girlfriend. Uh, we hung out some together. And I was working in the theater department, and Esther was very interested in theater, so... I was doing undergraduate. <laughs> undergraduate theater, and I was doing graduate theater, which meant that I was building the sets, basically. Um, but I assume that, that the two of you first met in a teacher-student kind of way. Yes, Esta was and is my teacher. Teacher, Esta. Yes. <laughs> I, I was trying to return to writing. This was about 2009, uh, and I had taken um, some decades off. Uh, I hate poetry as much as the next person, I suppose. Um, but it called me, but it called me back, and I was looking for a uh, workshop to be a part of. And I discovered that Esther was a workshop teacher at the West Side Y, and I applied to be a student in her class, and she accepted me. Uh, I sent her poems. And she said, yes, we'd love to have you. And it turned out that that, that semester, she was meeting her students at her uh, sumptuous uh, apartment. Um, it's, a, it's a penthouse. Uh, and, and we met in her penthouse with some wonderful, talented poets. And uh, I, I've, I've been, I've been a, an acolyte ever since. So I have a question. We are all teachers here. I teach 
people that are much long, younger than, than what you folks do. What age do you teach to? Uh, right now, I teach in a Montessori school, so it's a range of ages. Oh, so yes. I'm, right now I'm teaching fourth, fifth, and sixth graders yes. in, in a classroom, but only seven students, so, you know. I have tried to bring poetry to my classroom, and, you know, I get these stairs and I, I wonder what do you do how do you how do you get your students interested or how do they react it just depends it's very variant some people are absolutely fine it depends on the level of the class but I, I we once did a test speaking of little kids um, and I was thinking about it because I brought in when I knew we were going to meet with you guys I brought in this, this quote of, of William Carlos Williams. I'm going to come back to it, but I brought in this poem that everyone, if you're a grown-up, goes, what does it mean? You know, And it's about the red wheelbarrow. So much depends on the red wheelbarrow. The kids, the little kids, I, I, was, I was sent into schools to do, we had a grant to go into the schools and work with all different ages, so I had these little kids. The little kids weren't worried at all. They went to the colors, they went to red, they went to the rain and what it might be on the, you know, on the wheelbarrow. And, and then, then they, they had, you know, it was more difficult to enter the poem, but they already said yes. Do, do you see what I mean? They went, something about a red, you know, red wheelbarrow and, and the rainwater and what it feels like and what it might look like. And they go for all the tools of poetry that you spend, we spend our life trying to teach people. Here are the tools of poetry. And they go for it. They go for the music, they go for the, the imagery, they go for the sound, they go for the, oh, the colors are great. And then you can worry about the rest of the stuff. You know what I mean? Afterwards, we're so fixated on one way to enter. Do, do Is it because we don't? We forgot how to play? I think partly it's we, we forgot how to play, and they did not, and they did not. Because play doesn't have to have any meaning to it. It's just fun to do. But you can find something out of the play. You play, and then you can say, okay. Yes. Then, da 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 da. Yeah, exactly. Then, think very about inspiring. this. How about that? Yes. High, high school students, and I, I spent most high of my career. Hard, I, I spent most of my career teaching high school students. High school students have already uh, uh, internalized the um, uh, the question, a prediction of the question that the teacher is going to ask. The teacher is going to ask. What does it mean? Right. And Sorry. if there is anything that's ever killed poetry or it's the that. love of that's poetry, right. it's the question, what does it mean? And when you were discussing the Red Wheelbarrow and, and you talked about kids being able to find ways to enter the poem, there's probably some wise-ass third grader who's probably been trained already because we start uh, with, with preparing kids for the tests even in second grade, who's going to say, yes, but what does it mean? Mm. And that's going to spoil the whole thing. Mm. So, so when I'd say to students, just the question that you, you didn't have to ask the kindergartners, find a place that you can enter the poem. There you go, there you go. So well, find, find a place, place that you can, can get in. There you go. And let's, let's talk about them, let's so list them. And, and say, say perhaps, why that was the place you were able to enter the poem. What was it about that line? What was it about the, the fact that the, the wheelbarrow was red? Yeah. I love it. Or that the, the chickens were running around. And yeah. the touch with chickens. It's wonderful. Chickens? 
in a poem? I mean, mm-hmm. come on, it's like great, <laughs> right? It's how I, I teach film. It's because I try to show my st- film students difficult films, and I say, don't worry about what it means. What, 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 what did you find interesting about it? Mm-hmm. What was the image right. that, you, that, that kind right. of enticed you? And also this terrible idea that it means one thing. You know, that the bad teacher says, oh, what does it mean? Plug in the socket. You get an A if you say what I think, you know. But Ms. Weiner, what's the answer? What should I write down in but my notes? But you're prepping them uh, for the test. That's you know, my, en- my entire career as a, a public school person has been trying to uh, uh, instill standards way, right? and yeah. to get them ready for uh, to have the standards tested, you know. Okay, yeah. I think Test I think we've gone much are. too far in this podcast, and not have read any poems that you two have written. <laughs> uh, Chris, Chris has a question there. Your another, poem, another test, Chris. I can uh, tell. You, you said, yeah. Here comes the quiz. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you said something, um, Esther, about the way a poem ends, the way it begins, and way it, the way it ends. Your poem read begins one way and continues all the way to the end in one, but the last word, blood, changes the poem utterly. Would you read that poem? Uh, Red, don't wear it, said the mother. It makes you look Italian. Wear it, said the Irish lover. It looks terrific on you. Won't have it in the house, said the friend. It reminds me of my husband who loved lipstick, silk, maraschino, geranium, tomato, lobster, fire, radish, toenail polish, blood. That last word just cast the entire poem on its head. I'm glad. But, but it is also red. But it is red. <laughs> no, it is definitely of, red. There's a lot of red there. <laughs> I don't know whether this goes along with the theme of beginnings and endings. Because um, it seems to me a lot of times poems will begin one way and end another way, but yet the beginning and ending, they kind of match up. They match up, but not in obvious ways. Right. I mean, they move, What? where do they move to? Because nothing stays in one place, does it? It has to. It right. has to go right. somewhere, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't wear it, said the mother, and then it ends in blood. Yes. I mean, there's all kinds of That's right. vibrations yeah, that are going on. Yeah, their blood may have started earlier. <laughs> and and, and yeah. that becomes a poem that demands a second reading, right? You can't be read yes. the first yeah. time yeah. because when we, get, when we get to the word at, at the end, you want to go back and say, how did it get there? <laughs> And that's a wonderful yes. thing in a poem, when, yes. it, when it moves you right back to the beginning right. and has you read it again. All right, I'm, I'm going to request a poem now that has a beginning and ending that are almost the same, and the middle kind of like takes us on a trip, and it's called, Lordy, I Hope There Are Tapes. Oh, that's <laughs> one of my favorites. And I think that may match up Alan's. nicely with that's, this. That's this great. This is Alan Lordy, I Hope There Are Tapes, which is a, um, a quotation from... James Comey, who you might remember from the news. Lordy, I hope there are tapes. You call up the stairs to tell me what we'll need to make it through the long night ahead. The water's running, and I can hardly hear, though you're known to assert that to listen and to hear were never the same, no matter. 
We know this part always ends in a caustic, never mind. I do hear you slam the door and imagine your short sigh before heading off into your day. I'm alone now and can make mine any way I'd like. Though, Lordy, I hope there are tapes for later when I get to the grocery, and this great forgetfulness is bound to come over me, surrounded by the bounty of America, shelves stacked with goods no one could ever use, given even a lifetime. The produce shaped into so many pyramids we'd once hoped to visit, but now know we never will. The prepared foods chilled and ready to be reheated and consumed. But where should we put them if left uneaten when our day is done? This is a great land with so many choices of who to believe and why and infinite possibilities of what to buy. So please don't berate me when I call to ask what I need to bring. I know we already have everything and are likely still <laughs> to feel we've been taken and underserved and finally and fatally misunderstood. Though, Lordy, I hope there are tapes of the long night so long ago when we first fell into each other's arms. Lovely. Oh my God. There is so many vibrations there. Um, and such a, such a lovely stitching together of the personal and the historical polarity. I know that's what I think about it. Because it's I think we, we need to we need to talk about the um, the tapes that uh, these these could be these could be personal tapes. It's like I I wish my wife would remember. Oh, you I know, have wished that so many times. You know what? What, <laughs> what, 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 I, what I actually said, and not what she thought I said. Yes. You know, there's yeah. that. But I then mean, there's also as you say, the stitching to the other tape, that notion of tapes. Is but great. there's clearly the connection it's between great. Trump. And his firing of uh, Comey. Of uh, Comey. Can you talk a little bit about that? Where does that yeah, stitch in? Well, you know, I, the the line resonated with me when I heard it, as it I it did with a lot of people. Right. Lordy, I hope there are are tapes. Yes. There's something very old fashioned and Lordy. down home right. uh, about it from James Comey, who's kind of a New York guy. Um, and um, when I heard it, I wanted to weave it into a poem. But it seems to me it was so hard to write Trump poems. Uh, I, I, I found it wearying. I have a few, by the way. I have some Trump poems because we, we were so, uh, we were in such shock, you know, during, during those years, especially at the beginning, it came to a shock to our systems. And finally, I realized, let me get away from him. Let me yeah. write a poem about my life. Uh, and of course, my wife was thrilled when I wrote this poem and, <laughs> and, and, and gave, this, gave this glimpse into our marriage, which is really a wonderful marriage. And, uh, you know, it flows very much. And I heard Rebecca uh, uh, mention this a few minutes ago, that it's, it's very similar to what lots of people experience who are in relationships. And I wanted to make it not about Trump and make it uh, about me and make it about Trump. I love it. It's just a wonderful mess. 
I would oh. love to hear scatological series. I love scatological series. series. No. Yeah, that's what I was just going <laughs> to say. Right after with that lovely marriage. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I read scatology series, and he talks about a wonderful marriage. Um, scatology series is the name of this poem, um, and it is actually the name of an art exhibit that I went to. Scatology series, Marek calls the erotic sculptures he invites me to see at the gallery where I run into the man who'd once been my life, who'd introduced me to Marek. Scatology series, to which I bring another man whom I met through another man who has twice been my lover and friend to both men I've already mentioned, but not to Marek, whose wife is here and helped with the opening of Scatology series although they're living apart. And I gaze at the objects Marek has sculpted, sensuous urinals in purest white porcelain mounted on steel, and I learn that the man who'd once been my life will be married in autumn, although this didn't happen, and I leave with the man whom I brought to the gallery who will soon have to leave to dine with the son of the woman who has left him for the third time. <laughs> now that would be a nice thing to read at a wedding, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, that's perfect for a wedding. Or a funeral. Or a funeral. The one in autumn didn't happen, I, I, so we'd have to say, nah, but you have yeah. to fo follow along with the... Uh, right. It's like, it's like a dance Thank where you. everyone keeps changing partners. That's it's right. like we keep circling and someone and else a, is there. And, and then it's I'm, a scatology series. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right, exactly. That's beautiful. Exactly. That's beautiful and ugly, too, in a yes, way. Yes, it is. Yeah. And, and frightening in another way and all kinds of ways. But it really Art. was the name of a wonderful ceramics exhibit. <laughs> uh, fever. Ah, fever. Okay. Fever in the morning, fever. There you go. That's it. The inspiring thing. Right. right? I don't know. It seems there seems to be a linking here of scatology series and fever. There, there is and there isn't, and it's also you know the world we've been living in, right? I, I, I want to just take a second because I was thinking with, with, when Alan was doing the other poem that, there's that wonderful Emily Dickinson idea about tell the truth but tell it slant, and 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 there's this other idea tell, with another wonderful the, poet. Tell all the truth. But tell, tell it, it but tell it slant. It's all. It's not direct, you know. And you can do a lot of things at one time mm -hmm. if you're doing that. And that's what you were doing. And it made me think of of this too. Fever is, as it says in the epigraph here, a cento that every line is an actual line taken from another piece of writing. It's supposed to be from a poem, but people kind of mess around a little bit with it. So um, this is called Fever. Fever, she was the whole thermometer. Fever, when you kiss me, fever all through the night. We got married in a fever, hotter than a pepper sprout. As if this exact and violent tryst had been a fevered secret for a week. My love is as a fever 
Let fever sweat them till they tremble. The fever called living is conquered at last. Humanity has but three great enemies, fever, famine, and war. Of these, by far the greatest, by far the most terrible, is fever. So when a raging fever burns, we shift from side to side by turns. I abandon myself to the fever of dreams. I am glad it cannot happen twice, the fever of first love. For I am possessed by a fever for knowledge, experience, and creation. Patriotism is as fierce as a fever, pitiless as the grave, blind as a stone, and irrational as a heedless hen. If I write what I feel, it's to reduce the fever of feeling. Never know how much I love you. Never know how much I care. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all from other Other, pieces of language. I just, it's like a found poem. Well, I would like to hear one of Alan's. Don't get sick in America because we haven't had too much humorous stuff yet. And this I find very I love that. funny. Yeah. And very serious. And very which is serious. what serious people are. They're seriously funny. seriously funny. <laughs> That's right. right. I'm of an age when uh, I've begun to spend uh, more time than I want to um, at hospitals and visiting friends and um, uh, all sorts of reasons. Um, and they're, they're not happy places. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad I could find some humor in them. Uh, my friend Willard Smith, who was my colleague, a fellow English teacher at John Bound High School in Flushing in Queens, called me one day to say that he was in the emergency room. And I said, Will, who are you with? And he said, I'm here by myself. I said, I'm coming right over. So the poem is called Don't Get Sick in America. Despite not being a doctor, I give him my best advice. AARP, I tell him, always, at all costs, remain perpendicular. (laughs) My old pal Willard would laugh if his hearing aid hadn't come loose and we'd been sitting at the diner shooting the breeze over coffee him telling me the same story the third or fourth time. I love the guy, but now he's lying on a gurney in the ER corridor for the fourth straight hour, getting edgy, and who can blame him after all this time? And against my better advice, he's parallel to the floor along with all the others quiet on their tabletops or writhing gently in pain. Most of the pain energy already rested out of them. Each has or doesn't have insurance. They're black and brown and gray and young, and the doctor who hurries by from time to time gives me a look that signifies, I know, I know, it's crazy. She's a beautiful yellow beige with a face shaped like a heart, and I think I'm in love. The ER, this is America, the great 
equalizer. No one's special here. No one gets to see the doctor first because he's middle class or white, or he used to be a Protestant from Rochester back in the day, and he was famous for clicking his heels and saying, in Germany they stand up when I enter the room, and everyone would tell him, sit down and shut up, Willard. Though I'm not the next of kin, a nurse figures I must be close, so she stops by and tells me he'll have a stress test first thing in the morning after spending the night in the hall because the treadmill's booked the rest of the day. And just in case you needed a reminder, don't get sick in America. You gotta have patience or dignity to burn. And one way or another, we're all gonna have to pay. Our son just was, uh, came through a very difficult period uh, and he was in the ICU for a long time and thank God he had insurance. Uh, but if he hadn't, it would impoverished us because mm -hmm. he had four surgeries and it would mm -hmm. impoverished us. Yes. One of the things that's happening in hospitals now is that the technology is running way ahead of the, of the facility and the architecture. I, I have a friend who um, had to be taken to the emergency room just two weeks ago, and he was there overnight. And in the midst of this, um, he had a CT scan because they were pursuing what his ailment was. And as he's uh, sitting in the emer emergency room waiting uh, to get admitted, and he waited till morning to get admitted, all of a sudden on his cell phone came the results of his CT scan. Oh, wow. So it didn't come to him through any doctor or any nurse or any practitioner. He learned uh, what, what his diagnosis was directly on his phone. It wasn't such a happy diagnosis, and to get it in this way oh is just God. horrifying. Oh my goodness. You're listening to Poetry, What Is It Good For? with poets Alan Wallowitz and Esther Weiner. Let's try two poems, and I, I think they have a political slant to them. I like what's worse, but I, I'm going to I'm going to read I'm going to read what's worse because that that that's a, a little more um, typical of of my work, in which I tend to uh, write about my family and make them angry at me. I love this one because it reminds me of my days back in Miami during the Cuban Missile mm -hmm. Crisis. Yeah. Right. It's called What Worse, and it's dated October 27, 1962, which was um, uh, the, the, the middle end of the Cuban Missile Crisis. What's worse? Whatever I felt, I feared. And that night it was in the air. My father wanted bread for supper, and I was sent out in the thick of it, not knowing to go fast or slow, and which might make it worse. My folks and their demands, the big kids who hung all night in the woods ready to shake me down, the Russian missiles aimed right at my heart at any moment now. 
what did I ever do? And what's worse, who'd be left to tell my tale? On this the night the world would end. A boy sent on his own to Seligman's to buy a seeded rye. Make sure it's sliced thin. I wouldn't starve. I had the bread, the caraway stuck in my teeth, the sourness to remind me of home where I'd never arrive. Might as well have the taste in my mouth of what little I'd been while rolling through the heavens, one moment tangling with dad, the next wrestling with God. Or what's worse, maybe we'd all be blown to bits. I hadn't even said a word, and I'd never get to feel anything at all. Okay. So there's, there's a male version of the end of times due to political incursions. Let's, let's listen to uh, Esther Weiner's... I'm sorry, Two I days it. after, do you want Two, two that, days uh, after, right. And I want to do a little <coughs> experiment with this. I'd like mm-hmm. to read it twice. Okay. Once, you do describe the shape of the poems, because the yes, shape is important. Yes, it's very important, yeah. I'd like you to read the two columns, the way you usually read it, I think. And then I'd like you to read it across. Okay. As if we're jumping from one sure. tower to the other. Sure. The poem on page is written uh, in uh, two columns with a small space in between the columns. Finally, some sun. From my fire escape terrace, I look out on another roof. Astroturfed, lounge chaired, picnic table planted. See the sculptor spray painting his two rectangular shapes black. Then on the phone from her farm on the west coast of England, Carol tells me her daughter was all dressed for her first disco night at school, wearing the glitter t-shirt she'd wanted. When Carol realized the New York skyline the two towers on her daughter's tiny breast. Can we, fo- it can we follow way, it the other way? You, you've just run it from the top of the tower down one, top of the tower down the second. Right. Now let's, let's run the line across as if we're tightrope walkers. Okay. From one to the um, other. And it's definitely not written like that, which is why you're wanting me to, to try to do it. Yeah, right? because okay. I'm, I'm, yeah. See what happens, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Finally, some sun. Then, on the phone, from my fire escape, from her farm, terrace, I look out on the west coast, on another roof of England, Carol tells me, astroturf, lounge chaired, her daughter was all dressed, picnic table planted for her first disco night, see the sculptor at school, wearing the glitter, spray-painting his T-shirt she'd wanted when two rectangular shapes, Carol realized, black, the New York skyline, the two towers on her daughter's tiny breasts. I like that. Bravo. It's a very interesting Bravo. way to do it. You play uh, you've jazz done, You've never it. done it that yeah. way no. before. No, but it's... It it's just jumped out at me as like an obvious way yeah. of playing with this. Yeah, you read it beautifully, this. too. Yeah, I'm I, sure if you did it again, you'd find another way of doing yes, it. Yes, I an think actress. you would. I, but but 
Um, it's very interesting. And it reminds way. me of the tightrope walker who kind of uh, went yeah. across from one yes. tower to the other. Roland yeah. Petit. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. right. That's right. right. To come back to our <coughs> initial <coughs> thoughts in this podcast, mm -hmm. um, poetry shouldn't scare people. No. Because poetry is whatever you make of it. Well, not everything. I mean, it, that poem isn't about a labor strike at Mount Sinai. No, I mean, but it, it, I don't mean I don't mean content the content. Lines. You mean what I you mean, shape of it? The shape. I of it, see your, what you're the saying. The music of it. Yes. What you hear in your all ears. All the tools we have at our all disposal. The, all the things. The right. reader has those tools too. That's right, and that's what you have to convey. You've got it right there. You've got it right there. The reader or the listener. The reader that's, or the listener or yeah. the person in the room who's going when is it going to end you know yeah. I mean they all have it right at their disposal yeah. Yeah. they have all those tools we want you two to read a poem of the others oh, the others yeah so you knew you we got you ready for this one that you the did. other hasn't read yet well I have a, a I have a secret reason for amongst other reasons for choosing this particular one of Alan's, but you do whatever, you do what you do. That's fine. All right. Go ahead. I, I'm, I'm going to read a poem that, that, that I love. Uh, there are several that I love, but uh, this is a, a father poem of Estes, and it's also a poem that uh, speaks about one of my heroes, Muhammad Ali. And it's called, When They Were Kings. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, said Muhammad Ali. Think Yiddish, act British, said Daddy. He loved Ali, when Ali was Cassius Clay, and afterwards when he wasn't. My gentleman immigrant father with silk ties from sulkas of Park Avenue and hand-blocked hats from Kavanaugh's new style when he saw it. So I watched Ali in his ring and out and watched my father say good morning to every employee before he sat down at his desk. When the prediction came from the rumble in the jungle, from the fetishur in Zaire, a woman with trembling hands would somehow get to foreman. My father already had them. Ali went for the rope-a-dope. My family fought about dosages of L-dopa. Now Ali fights my father's battle of the trembling, hands and tongue. Lucky he rehearsed with foreman. I've wrestled with an alligator for this fight. Daddy is silent, but they're both right. I'm going to read Alan's poem the story of the milkman. And after he writes this wonderful poem, he offered us the story of the story of the milkman. And I'm gonna read a tiny bit of what he read, wrote at the end of reading his poem, which ironically mentions that famous line that I was going to talk about already before I knew Alan was doing this W.H. Auden's line, poetry makes nothing happen. Um, and of course, 
Auden proceeds to give you all the 20 million things that poetry does do after he wrote that line. Um, so let me read the story of the milkman and then we'll go to a few of the little notes that Alan wrote afterwards. The story of the milkman. When I was a kid, our milkman was killed. Right before dawn at a railroad crossing, one low whistle away from where we lived. We read about it in the mirror and were in awe, seeing Nick, a man we'd actually met, right there with the wife and kids he left, inset with a picture of the wreck. At bottom, a separate shot, was the watchman, bleary and ashamed as he was led from the scene. We grabbed our bikes and tore to the crossing, but it was mostly cleaned up except the street was closed, and if you wanted to cross, you had to ride all the way over to farmers. We just wanted to look. Later, my father took us there in the car and made a noise like a train coming through. I dug my nails into my palms and wished Nick were my dad. That's how strange crossings are. You want the train to come and kind of hope it won't. I can't even see Nick's face anymore, which I had memorized like a list of spelling words, or my father's, which I forgot to study at all. The next week, there was another milkman, and my father was gone, and I was a father. What I hold on to most is that milk box, as if I owned it still, and Nick was going to fill it with quartz of glistening glass, made of galvanized tin, modeled from the weather. You could barely make out the name Sheffield, stenciled in red, and on the hottest day of summer, it was so cold inside, you wished you could crawl in and hide from whatever was confusing you to death or scaring you sick. And in the notes on this story of the milkman, um, Alan writes, and the wonderful thing about this is when the poem was, was published, the people and the family uh, found it, correct, Alan? And they discovered That's, it. And it's, and you they, can and fill they, in a little and bit. They and they contacted me, the um, uh, grandson who had never met his father, uh, his grandfather, uh, of course, uh, was, wanted to know about his grandfather and he came across uh, my poem and he contacted me in hopes that I had some memory of, of his grandfather and I, I didn't. Uh, I just had this story that, that I had retold in the poem. Uh, the story about the death of, of the milkman, Nicholas Severo, and how it impacted me. And uh, through, the, through the grandson, I had communication with milkman's sister. I had communication with a granddaughter of the milkman, whose father had been in utero, had not been born when his father, the milkman, was killed at the railroad crossing. So he was born into this fatherless world and had only heard about his father. And the, the granddaughter told me 
that it allowed her father to deal with his father's death and the fact that his father uh, was gone before his birth in a brand new way. So I, it put me in mind of, of uh, Auden's quotation. Uh, I, I felt like something had happened. So in writing the poem, it, it was important to me because it was an important childhood memory. But, but the fact that it made something happen outside of me uh, w w makes it an important poem in, in my life. Well, so there we have a small answer to one of our questions. What's poetry good for? Well, some, some, sometimes it, it, it moves someone. Sometimes but, but, it moves someone else. But also, um, that line is so misread in my, in my belief system, poetry makes nothing happen. Oh. I mean, it's so completely misread. And then if you read it and go on, it's like hearing Alan just say what he said. All the things that you get from poetry, he, Auden follows. And, and gives it to you, yeah, right? And, and everybody thinks that, that he's saying that poetry makes nothing happen, but he, it's an ironic makes line. Everything. It's, it's an ironic, ironic line. He's a major ironist. Yes. And, and um, in fact, it makes tons of things, but it doesn't make something happen. Mm -hmm. It's this poem that you have given this family, Nick's family, that is, it's not just words on a page, it's not just paper. It's a living thing. Mm -hmm. It's like this living thing that now right. is part of their, in their pockets. It moves beyond itself. It's warm and it's... That's and it, right. That's, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, no, it's a, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful gift. So, so poetry is a gift. Poetry is a gift that we give to, to our brothers and sisters whom we don't even know. Whom we don't yes. even know. Poetry probably can't save us all, but it can lift us up or set us down hard, and it can sometimes interpret the world for us. Some poets, like Shelley, thought it could change the world, and I guess it does in various degrees. Homer, Dante, Shakespeare, and Goethe surely did, each in their own way. And so do our poets here at Poetry, What Is It Good For? Thank you. Esther Weiner and Alan Walwitz for sharing your work with us as we sit at a real New York City bar. Get parts beer culture bar. In the middle know. of the Omicron. West 72nd area. Street. Across the street from the mortuary, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just to keep everything real. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great to be together with you again, Chris. Indeed, in person. That's right. In this person. Is, this is great. This is the way to do podcasts. You're tuned to the Poetry What Is It Good For podcast. Let us know if you want to receive the Poetry What Is It Good For newsletter with updates on our postings. You can write us at poetrygoodfor, that's one word, poetrygoodfor at gmail.com. And consider donating to our efforts at our website, poetrygoodfor.com. And a great big thank you to Tim Gopperud for giving us permission to use his composition, Fantasia on Three French Carols, performed by Carrie Vecchioni on oboe and Ralph Erdahl on double bass, otherwise known as Oboe Bass. <laughs>